I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. I've always had a lot of respect for Christine Brennan because she's never been afraid to take a stand on an issue in sports, locally, nationally, internationally. She reports it, writes it, says it, stands by it. Christine has done so for four decades, and she's still doing it as a sports columnist for USA Today and a commentator for ABC News, PBS NewsHour, and National Public Radio. Today, she's our guest on PressBox Access. Talk about fearless. Well, Christine, thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Todd, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I want to start off with uh, a congratulations to you. The 2020, the Associated Press Sports Editors named you the Red Smith Award winner. Quite an honor. Quite an honor. How did, what, how did that make you feel? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think um, it means that I'm old. <laughs> you know, I, think, I think, Todd, as you know, uh, uh, it's, uh, you've got to be around a while to, to get that one. No, it was, it was, uh, I wasn't expecting it at all. And it was actually right before everything changed. It was March, early March. Uh, and I was flying back to D.C. and I, I had an email to uh, get in touch with someone from APSC who I would normally not hear from. And I thought, what's that about? So it was in baggage claim at Washington National Airport, D.C.A., uh, as I was waiting for my luggage from a trip, uh, I'd just been down to Florida, I, I think it was March 2nd, that uh, I, I got the message and then and then found out that I had uh, had won this prestigious award. And, you know, so many great names from uh, from sports journalism, as you know, right. including yeah. uh, my my uh, boss at The Washington Post, George Solomon, and a, a lovely honor, just a, a, a just almost overwhelming. Uh, your career has, has been quite the career. You were a trailblazer for women sports writers in so many ways, covered 18 straight Olympics. You know, I think about all those times that you were like the first person to do something you know, for a, for a female sports writer. Um, you know, when you think about the summation of your career, how, how do you put it all together? <laughs> you know, I just was doing what I loved and I'm still doing what I love. And I was able to, to be launched out of Northwestern University, my alma mater, um, and, and just got very fortunate to go right to the Miami Herald uh, at a time when uh, the Herald still had not hired a full-time woman sports writer. And you remember, you know, those times, I'm sure some of your listeners do too, go right out of college to this top 10 newspaper, Miami Herald. And I covered the Florida Gators football team uh, in 81 and 82. So I, I had this major beat right away. Right, right. And this was when this was when Miami didn't have uh, the NBA or Major League Baseball or hockey. It was just football. So the Dolphins and then the colleges. And so it was a big deal. But this, this happened because I was a woman and I'm going to be perfectly honest. You know, I, if I'd been a white man, I would not have gotten that job. Um, Billie Jean King says it best, you know, you need to see it to be it. Mm, and, right. and here I was a, I had an opportunity as 22 to be a, a role model for young women. And the Miami Herald gave me that opportunity. And I, I wanted to make the most of it, including uh, doing interviews about being the first woman, mm. even though for me, it was like, Hey, I just want to you know, write a story today. I just want to go out and cover, <laughs> right. you know, cover the, you know, do a dol cover a dolphin's practice and talk to Don Shulam, one of my heroes, who's now, you know, someone I'm covering. And yet, I also knew that uh, there would be people watching 
and probably hoping that I would fail. When you think about all the different things you covered, I think, um, but I think if there's one story that just jumps out in your career, it's a story that really just continues to live in the history of Olympics, but in American sports. Nancy Kerrigan and Tanya Harding. Uh, the most amazing story I've ever covered, Todd. Uh, they're, they're, you know, you, you describe a little bit of it and people now will go, yeah, that was a big deal. No, I mean, that story uh, took over the nation and in many ways the world for six or seven weeks. And it just, uh, just had this incredible drumbeat and momentum going. And it started January 6, 1994. Uh, with the attack on Nancy Kerrigan's knee. You know, where were you at the time when she was struck by what later we've learned was a baton by, an, by a, so somebody we didn't know who this was. This person shows up and hits her in the leg, Nancy Kerrigan, the great figure skater at the U.S. Championships. Where were you at the time and were you in the arena? I was in the other arena next door, Joe Lewis, uh, at which, of course, as you know, they're, they are connected. And Kobo Arena was the practice arena and that's where the women were practicing and Normally, I would be watching the women practice, but in this case, the pair's short program was going on. So I was sitting in a relatively empty Joe Lewis arena. Obviously, some fans were there, but in uh, press seating, in uh, just in one of the you know one of the sections with a group of Olympic writers, and including uh, Randy Harvey of the LA Times, Phil Hirsch of the Chicago Tribune, um, and a few others, and. Uh, someone came by and said that Nancy Kerrigan had been mugged. Now, <laughs> as only this could be, in, you know, in, in figure skating, right? You're kind of like, what? But meanwhile, there's there's a pair out there skating. Right. Music is playing, and it's this, you know, it's figure skating at its at its finest, and <laughs> kind of, you know, whatever it is, you know, whimsical, uh, kind of interesting, bizarre sport. And so th- this pair is skating, and so. None of us get up because we're just kind of, what was that? But we're watching this pair skate. So the moment the music ends, none of us spoke to each other, about five or six of us Olympic writers, the music ends and immediately all five or six of us just shoot up, stand up, and without saying a word, just file into the aisle and go uh, down in an elevator to the press room in Joe Lewis. And I looked at the uh, press chief, the spokesperson, the chief uh, PR person for U.S. figure skating, woman named Kristen Matta. I looked at her. She was sitting at a table and I just looked at her and I I, I can't, I know that that uh, obviously people listening can't see it, but I kind of did that shrug, like put my hands out like, huh? You know, kind of this look. And she had this pronounced nod of her head, like, yes. So without saying a word, I had said like, could this be true without her even knowing what I'm asking? She's nodding yes. And we were off and running on the wildest, craziest, and most amazing story I have ever and will ever see in my journalistic career. Now, I want to carry this through because it did go on for weeks because this was leading up to the Olympics. Um, really, it was every day in January and February. I was not there. I was covering college basketball at the time in Cincinnati. And I got to be honest, like my idea of figure skating at the time in my career, I thought, you know, I just kind of thought it was a joke. I remember once writing a column, you know, the very lazy thing where you, you know, just rip the sport. And, and I, and to tweak my mother, I, I cut it out and I mailed it to her because my mother, <laughs> you know, my late mother, she worshiped figure skating. Like Dick Button was a saint in her house. So, so I send her this column and a couple of days later, she writes back to me and says, or she didn't write back. She called, she called me and she said, you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> That's your mom. But what I, yeah. what, what I realized though, is that I thought it was crazy but it meant a lot to a lot of people. 
And why do you think that story just caught on like brush fire? At the time, Todd, by the way, you were not alone among a, a big segment of our population, probably mostly like guys who were thinking, you know, skating. Okay. I mean, Peggy Fleming. Yeah. Dorothy Hamill. Sure. Every boy wanted to date her and every girl wanted to be her. But it turns out at the time, figure skating was the second most popular sport on television to the National Football League in terms of ratings. Your listeners are going to just keel over at this, but this is a fact. It is true. In 1996, so two years after Tanya Nancy, uh, the World Championship, Figure Skating World Championships in Edmonton, and uh, the men's uh, long program, the men's final at, at the World Championships, went head to head with the NCAA men's basketball tournament. I think it was the Sweet 16. And Figure Skating beat it head to head in TV ratings. And it wasn't a minuscule decimal point. It was like two or three points. It was like a nine something to like a seven wow. something in ratings. Well, I know my mother was that's watching. Big, <laughs> yeah, that's, but it, you know what it was? It, it was women's football. Mm. Women took the remote control and said, honey, sit down and watch or leave the room. I'm in charge. I think it was a, a eye opener, uh, not just, you know, with you and your mom, but, but you knew that the Olympics, it was huge TV ratings. It was must see TV. So literally I'm on the front page of the Washington Post almost every day with this story. I mean, who would have thought that? You know, you remember, it's the lead story on NBC, ABC, CBS every night. It was the first reality TV story, frankly. That's a great point. Um, that's what I, yeah. Yeah. You know, this is about four months, right? Five, five months before O.J. Simpson, Simpson trial, and, two right, dead, right. and two dead bodies. And this was about a bruised knee that spurred Nancy Kerrigan on to the greatest performance of her life. Uh, you know, this was, she recovered. She was okay. So it's the most famous bruised knee in history. Well, again, it just transcended sports. It became like, I guess a great point that you made about the OJ trial. The, the murders happened a few months later. That trial obviously took on a life of its own. I heard OJ played football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but what I'm saying, is, it became like sports and culture. It just all meshed together. That was something about the time that we were living in 1994 that just brought something like this to life and really kind of like changed your career, right? I mean, you went on from there, you know, to write The Inside Edge, a book that Sports Illustrated has said is one of the top 100 sports books of all time. And that led you to the to the job you have had since at the, uh, at the USA Today with uh, being a columnist. So really, Nancy and Tanya played a part in your career. Is that right? Absolutely. You will not find many serious journalists who would say this, but I will. Tanya Harding changed my life. <laughs> uh, that that uh, obviously, again, I'm not making fun of someone attacking someone, clearly. But again, because Nancy Kerrigan survived, thrived and is, uh, you know, is, is great to this day. Um, you know, I think what it was for me was and, and I for I tell young journalists all the time, you just never know what story it's going to be. You probably feel this way, Todd, about your career, but you never know. I mean, who would have thought that that it would be a figure skating story that would then I would be able to write Inside Edge, which became a bestseller and then get another book deal, which then um, reflected the success of that. Before we leave that topic, give me your best Nancy Tanya story. Well, you know, I think uh, I, uh, there's when I think about the craziness at the Olympic Games and it was nuts. Um, it really, you know, the whole story, everything that was happening, it was just this crescendo building and it all just drops into the beautiful, pristine countryside of uh, snow, snow covered Norway. And uh, there was a lot happening. I mean, any any hiccup, any sneeze. And it was major news. Tanya, Nancy, you couldn't get enough of it. 
And I remember a dear friend, in fact, the spokesperson for the U.S. Olympic Committee at the time, I think you knew him as well, passed away uh, last year, Mike Moran. And Mike was, um, was in the center of this hurricane constantly. And they had this press conference about two in the morning in Norway. It was the day of the opening ceremonies. We'd already covered the opening ceremonies, frozen, it was brutally cold, writing story after story. And now they, two o'clock, they're going to have this press conference in the morning. And they're announcing Tanya Harding is going to be at, uh, at coming to the Olympics. And with that, all the U.S. Olympic Committee executives and officials leave the room as we have nothing but questions of how this <laughs> right. is going to happen. They're gone. <laughs> and poor Mike Moran is standing there. And there's a picture that actually a dear friend of his sent me after he passed away. Mike, in the eye of this hurricane, and you can see the back of my head. You can see all, you know, there's probably 150 journalists all gathered around. And Mike looks like the, literally the eye of the hurricane. And I remember asking Mike, I was kind of on his back shoulder, you know, back right shoulder. I remember asking Mike this question as he's just getting peppered with questions, uh, including is, are they going to live together? Because there was like a, an apartment. Oh, wow. that they, and they, yes, they were. And so I asked the key journalistic question, Todd, <laughs> are they going to be brushing their teeth next to one another? <laughs> what was the answer? <laughs> Mike Moran, who was, was a good friend then, obviously, and a colleague, of course, and, uh, you know, someone I quoted a lot. And became an even better friend. He turns slowly, like slow motion. And it gives me this look I will never forget, this glare. He says not a word, which is one of the first and only times Mike Moran didn't have something to say. He glares at me and he just turns his head back and he goes, next question. <laughs> and, uh, but I think they might have been brushing their teeth next to one another, which again, when you consider that one you know, the, the ex-husband and others of the one attacked the other and Tanya admitted knowing about it. Actually, was I thought it was a good question, but Mike Moran was having none yep. of it. Uh, no part of that. No part of that. No. Well, we talked so much figure skating and, and you were not a figure skater, but growing up, you played a lot of sports though, right? And growing up in Toledo, Ohio. Tell me a little bit about sports in your youth and how you even got into sports riding. So I was tall and athletic and wanted to play sports. And back then, a lot of parents told their daughters no. Oh, yeah. I mean, they really right. did. In the 60s, you didn't, you yeah, girls didn't play sports, this. right? No way. Yeah. No way. And my mom and dad said yes. And I couldn't wait till my dad would get home and I'd throw the baseball with him and play catch. And he got me a mitt. Uh, and most girls wanted dolls when they turned, you know, eight. And I, I mean, I had some dolls, but uh, I wanted a baseball mitt. My dad and mom just went out and got it, got it for me. And I, I never, you know, the term throw like a girl is so ridiculous mm. because, of course, now we're teaching millions of girls, generations of girls to throw the ball properly. So I guess it's a compliment. But back in the day, it wasn't a compliment. It was that pushing motion. And but I never through like a girl. My dad taught me how to cock uh, my, you know, my arm and, and go behind my ear and throw the ball. So that was how lucky was I to have these parents who were so comfortable in their skin um, that they, that they encouraged that, you, right. you know, that, that they didn't mind if what were the neighbors saying about what's going on in the Brennan household? Who cares? My dad went out and got a bat, invited all the kids over and we had baseball games awesome. every weekend and boys and girls. And so that, that really was my background, which then led to being a six-sport athlete at Ottawa Hills High School. Not because I was such a great athlete, but back then girls didn't specialize, but mostly basketball and uh, softball, uh, tennis, field hockey. You know, those were some of my, my big ones it, in high school. It's one thing to, to play sports. And even then, that, that was revolutionary for, for women to be playing sports at a young age. But to play it, but to write about it, I think one time you told me that you used to listen to the Tigers radio games and write about the games when you were a kid. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that that is true. Um, even not even the the major league level, the uh, Toledo Mudhens, uh, the Triple A team, of course, for the Tigers, as you know. And uh, we had season tickets for the Mudhens. My dad was the Pied Piper with season tickets with uh, uh, Michigan football, and uh, uh, we looked we looked north in Toledo. Obviously, we were right there on the line. And as Michigan games and uh, Tigers and but Toledo Mudhens were huge for us. And so I listened to an entire season of Toledo Mudhens games on the radio, keeping score and writing up little stories. <laughs> And I was like 10 years old. And I dare say not only was no girl in America doing that in the late 60s, uh, I probably very few boys were doing that. Uh, so that's how into this I was. And I remember my dad walking through the living room once, and that's where I had the radio for a lot of, and I was probably writing some little story up on, on you know, just a notebook paper. And he kind of looked, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just, you know, writing up about, you know, Hens just scored a couple runs and I'm writing that. <laughs> Even he was kind of, you know, my biggest supporter was kind of like, Okay, sure. Yeah, well, I, I got I to gotta admit, I had that same response from my own parents. I, I used to play this game, APBA. It was a dice game, baseball. Oh, yeah. And you would oh, you sure, had these cards, sure. and you'd play out uh, the 75 Reds, would play the 61 Yankees. And I had a notebook, and I would write game summaries after every game, and I kept stats, and I made trades to help the Reds, you know. <laughs> but but I would write these little summaries, and uh, my parents would walk by and like, oh, this geek. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and, you know, by the way, the Reds didn't need much help no. in 75 and 76. Yeah, even though we were we were up north, um, absolutely, I would get those games on the radio, which was really cool. So sports is such a big part of your life growing up. Writing, you, you go to Northwestern, you get your master's there, great journalism school, obviously. Um, and then you go to the Miami Herald in 1981, as you mentioned, as the first full-time female sports writer. Um, but you had interned there the year before, right, in Miami, I think? And That's right. Yeah, yeah I'd interned. Uh, and, and, you know, kids, anyone's listening, parents of kids, uh, internships are the key. I'm sure you agree, Todd. You know, it, you, uh, grades are great, and I, I'm all for getting all A's and and the pride you have in that. But, boy, oh, boy, it's so important, those internships. And I had, I was lucky. I had uh, four internships while I was at, at Northwestern, two at the Toledo Blade, my hometown paper. And the first one, Todd, was a city desk, you know, writing obits and mm. things like that, covering county fairs. But I kept wandering back to the sports section. Came I just real. thought this would be so yeah. cool to be a sports writer. So next summer was sports, and that was the U.S. Open was at Inverness. Uh, Hale Irwin won that one. I was an intern covering that. And every time I think uh, about covering golf now, I've been so lucky to cover a lot of the Masters, the U.S. Opens, et cetera. And I think about being that, uh, what was I, probably a 20-year-old uh you know, a student just wandering through the press room, looking at all the names, you know, Tom Boswell and Dan Jenkins, you know, the nameplates. And um, it, it does make me smile because, of course, I, yeah. I knew Dan so well and I know Tom well. And, and now, of course, those nameplates uh, at those tournaments, I, you know, I'm, I'm now covering them and I'm, I'm at, in one of those. <laughs> now things. you're the so nameplate. <laughs> it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, it's pretty, it's, it's, uh, I never lose sight as, of how fortunate I am. But as an intern in 1980, the Herald sent you to an NFL locker room, right? You went to the Vikings, Dolphins uh, preseason game. And so they send you in there to an NFL locker room. You're probably, you know, 20 years old. What, what was that? What was that like in 1980 for you to all of a sudden be challenging the status quo? You know, it was uh, I was an intern. I was uh, in between undergrad and master's at Northwestern. And so um, the sports editor, of the Miami Herald, Paul Anger, who uh, was instrumental in so much of, of uh, the opportunities I had and uh, and uh, whatever success I've been able to achieve. Um, Paul pulled me aside uh, a few days before. Uh, the, these were exhibition games. So this is the old Orange Bowl, and it's the Miami Dolphins uh, against the Minnesota Vikings, as you said. 
And I'm going to do a feature on, just a sidebar, on the Vikings uh, after this preseason game. So I'm part of the Miami Herald's team covering that game. There's probably, you know, probably six, seven, eight of us. Larry Dorman was on the beat at the time covering the Dolphins. And anyway, so Paul pulls me in and says, uh, we're going we're gonna to send you to, you're going to do a Viking sidebar, which means you're going to go in the locker room. We've talked to the Vikings people. Uh, they know you're coming in there. They've never had a woman in the locker room before, but they are going to let you in. And, you know, there was something about it. I was like, you know, I'm ready for this. So I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Uh, game's over, and uh, in I go into the uh, into that door at the Orange Bowl, um, which uh, I ended up being in many times after that. And I walk in, and first uh, is the the coach, as you know, Todd. Well, it's the coach, and so that's Bud Grant. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, the legendary Bud Grant. And yes, chiseled out of rock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm 22 years old, and you know, I mean, all those Super Bowls that he coached in. I mean, I've watched. Every football game on television, and you know, I mean, I, I could recite everything about Bud Grant. So, what did Bud think when you walked up? So he was—he uh, had been told as well. Obviously, I, I got to give credit to the Paul at the Miami Herald for making sure that the word got out, so that they—they at least knew about it. Uh, although what was come, to come was kind of interesting, but uh, but there's a few of us asking questions, and so I, I'm just with a group. But gradually they all peel off and I have a question specifically to ask him a couple questions. Yeah, we all have done that occasionally. And I also, by the way, I was wearing a skirt, um, very, you know, at, uh, probably below my knee. I was like conservatively dressed, but I thought I want to make it clear that if anyone's even just glancing around, there's a woman in here. I had such respect for for the fact that I was doing this and for their privacy, the players, um, and the understanding that this is the workplace and and. It's a strange workplace, but it is the workplace for for reporters. So that's why you have equal access to it. Anyway, and so I looked at Bud Grant and he goes, "Uh, you're going in there. And I said, I am. Now, there are coaches, as you know, around that time who would stop women. There were many who were not um, at all understanding of of the the idea of equal access and equality for women. So um, that was not a good time for a lot. Yeah, and it went on all through the 1980s. I mean, you know. Sure, even, you know, you could probably find a college coach right now who doesn't believe a woman should be in the locker room, which again, shame on them. Uh, Thankfully, the laws and and the the rules have changed and the commissioners made the decisions and what have you. But um, but Grant, to his great credit, said, all right, there you go. How about that? How about that? You know, this is a guy born in, I think, but Grant was born in the 20s, probably. Probably 16, 20. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. So anyway, in I go. And um, I would love to have a camera uh, video of me me and my face uh, and and just what I was doing. I'm sure I was fine. But inside, my heart was, you know, starting to race a little bit because what I walked into 
Um, there were players in all kinds of stages of undress. Uh, there were some players still in uniform. There were some who were um, uh, naked or wearing towels and everything in between. Now, my goal, and I knew this, was to just beeline to a few lockers and get a couple quotes and get out of there. And of course, the idea, I'm sure it's hard, I can't believe we still have to talk about this, but for those listening who think this is somehow exciting or sexy, it's the complete antithesis of that, as you know, Todd. Uh, and if you were in a woman's locker room, you'd feel the exact same way. You've got a job to do. You're going to get these uh, quotes and get out of there. Uh, but for a preseason game, they take uh, there's no names above the lockers. Right, so you don't know who's who. And yeah, the, yeah. right, so I've got a I got my flip card because I knew I needed to be prepared. I've never you know, prepared my whole life for these moments, and um, and so I've got the names and the numbers. So if I need to find out who where he is, certain well, Tommy Kramer, I would know who he was. He was the quarterback at the time, but. You know, you've got, oh, number 88. Okay, there he is. And I can quickly look if I need, no, there's four or five guys I wanted to talk to. Well, they're now starting to take off their jerseys. So now you don't have numbers and you don't have any numbers above the lockers like you normally would in a regular season. And I'm stuck because I cannot look around. I cannot. My eyes cannot wander. I knew this. I knew all this at 22. So out out of the blue, as I'm standing there, uh, walks up this player. And it is Tom Hannon, a safety for the Vikings. And he looks at me and he says, who do you need? Mm. How about that? Who do you need? There's always guys that will be and, helpful, right? Well, and this is extraordinary. I'm the first woman to ever be in the Vikings locker room. It's my first time ever being in a men's locker room. And I said a couple of names. And I then noticed Tommy Kramer was still there. And I could see him. And then I said, and you, because he had had two interceptions that day and I wanted to interview him. So I talked to him and then I walked over to Kramer, talked to him. Fine, totally fine. Uh, There was uh, one other player I needed to speak with. And he, uh, unfortunately, Todd, uh, wanted to uh, stand there buck naked. And so he walks up to me and I I walk up to him. I mean, we both kind of, you know, walk towards each other because, um, I, I think he sensed that I needed, wanted to talk to him, and he just had to be naked. Mm. Now, the good news is that I, uh, just by chance, carried an 8 by 11 notebook that day, <laughs> and um, I learned very good quickly that uh, <laughs> an 8 by 11 notebook, especially when with heels, I'm probably six, you know, six, six and a half, six one, um, that uh, that eight and a half, eight by 11 and a half notebook was perfectly positioned <laughs> and uh, got the interview and got out of there. Um, I will also say that before this, I went up, uh, I, I, you know, I went in the locker room. I, I actually called back home. I got my mom and dad, of course, like I'm sure many yeah, of I was of wondering us, what you know, your dad was thinking. M- mom's on one line, dad's on the other. And I told them I was going to be going into the, uh, into the, you know, men's locker room for the first time. And he's, he, I said, dad, do you have any advice for me? And he said, honey, keep eye contact at all times. <laughs> Father knows <laughs> and, best. And, and, <laughs> that's right. So, uh, that's been my, uh, that's exactly what I did, um, uh, Saw the whites of their eyes. Well, from there, football became your life throughout the 80s. I mean, you, you covered uh, the Miami Hurricanes uh, uh, for the Herald, um, you know, the great Howard Schnellenberger. <laughs> I always think of Howard with his pipe. He always looked like he was teaching a philosophy class, like he's going to tell you about Socrates or something. Uh, but exactly. you covered that great 84 Orange Bowl when uh, the Hurricanes upset Nebraska. Um, what a team that was. And Miami was an a, a incredible underdog. But that, by the way, that experience covering the, the Hurricanes in 83, um, I'm out there watching practice and the actually spring 
before, you know, that, that fall season. And Jim Kelly was on, still there, right. working out. He'd had a shoulder Injury, separation yeah. and surgery, but he was getting back in shape and for, for, for pro scouts. So he's, he's throwing passes right on the same sideline as a couple other quarterbacks are throwing passes. And I'm looking at these guys going, my God, they all look fantastic. And then I'm saying to myself, even though, again, I'm a relatively new reporter, I know football so well from going to all kinds of, you know, season tickets at Michigan, season tickets at the University of Toledo, watching every college and pro game, I'm thinking these guys look really good. Like this is only one campus in the country. <laughs> How is it possible? Well, in addition to Jim Kelly, the other two guys were Bernie Kosar and Vinny Testaverde. Amazing. So lucky me one covering team. that. Yeah. Yeah, and one team. Now, Kelly then graduated, and then uh, Testaverde and Kosar, of course, were freshmen. And Howard Schnellenberger made the choice. Um, there was a third guy as well, mm-hmm. Al Van de Wendy, that they were deciding between. But but Schnellenberger picks Kosar. They lose their first game to Florida. And then, of course, they never lose again. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, as a, as a young journalist, I'm covering every second of that. I'm the only outsider, probably, of any kind that was around that team every single day. What a great ride. What a wonderful, yeah. amazing experience. Yeah. yeah. And that really kind of took you up to the uh, the Washington Post, right? The Post reaches out, hires you, and then it's more football. You become the yep. first woman <laughs> to cover what was then the Washington Redskins, what we now know, rightfully so, as the Washington National Football Team. 1985, now you're on the NFL beat. The great Joe Gibbs was the coach. He had players like Joe Theismann, Dexter Manley, Dave Butts, you know. So how were you received and treated on a day-to-day basis as a woman covering that NFL team? I can't say enough, Todd, about Joe Gibbs and what a class act he is, was, and is. Uh, we, we stayed in touch and, um, you know, here he is. He is told that, uh, first of all, we know they don't love any beat writer, right? I mean, that's the, the essence of, of the job. Yeah, you're doing your if job doing if they don't job. like you, right? <laughs> yeah, if I'm doing my job properly and they're doing their job properly, they're not going to like me. Uh, you don't go in, by the way, wanting to be disliked, but my role is to serve the readers of the Washington Post. It's not to serve Joe Gibbs or uh, any of his players and, or the owner or anyone. So we're now in 1985. It was still piecemeal prior to 85 in terms of locker room. So I could go uh, to the Miami Dolphins or cover them when I was down in Miami and and Don Shula well ahead of his time. What a wonderful, wonderful human being, a terrific class act, uh, just one of the greats of all time. Uh, He issued robes for his players back in 1982 and said, put on the robes, and yeah, it's not that difficult. Women reporters. Yeah, yeah be a and, pro. In this case, it was mostly right. me. And there was another a woman uh, in Daytona Beach. Uh, they're going to be in there. And that was the end of the story. Other teams hadn't figured it out yet. Right. Or, or were, were, I don't know, dragging their feet. Back then, this was the norm. And so Gibbs did not believe women should be in the locker room. He's a very religious guy. And he didn't think women should be in the locker room. At the same time he's being asked about all this, George Solomon and other sports editors are going up to meet Pete Rozelle, then the commissioner of the National Football League, and saying, hey, time has come. This is, again, a summer of 85. The Washington Post is going to put a woman on the beat. This is the most important beat in Washington, obviously the football team. So it's the time has come. And whether it was because specifically of me or not, I don't care. I don't think no one's ever said, and I don't need it to be. But this accumulated point, we've reached a critical mass here. And Pete Rozelle issues an edict, all locker rooms have to have equal access for male and female reporters. Done. You cannot keep women out by the loading dock, smelling the bus fumes, which happened to be a lot. So Gibbs does an interview 
Uh, I'm up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, so I'm not seeing the, the interviews back in DC, but friends are all over my, my voicemail, Todd, saying Gibbs was just on with Glenn Brenner, late Glenn, Bre Glenn Brenner um, here, a sportscaster in DC. And he went on and on. He doesn't believe women should be in the locker room. I don't think she'd be in the locker room. I don't think she should be in. So I find I, that's what I heard from these friends of mine. Well, then when I got home and actually saw the tape, uh, there was a second part to Gibbs's comment. And even though he personally did not believe that a woman should be in the locker room, he had been told by Commissioner Pete Roselle that I would be allowed in the locker room. So that is that she will be allowed in the locker room. Wow. End of story. Him. That's all you can ask for. And, um, and Gibbs and I had a terrific relationship. He's one of these guys that never went off the record ever. Really? So he just he, always, he, yeah. he was on the record at all times? Always on the record. He would, uh, if he was mad about something, he'd call my, my home uh, landline, of course, back then. Uh, is all we had. It, it, you know, I'd get a call at 6, 6.30 in the morning and he'd be, you know, uh, wake me up probably and that's fine. And he'd be mad about a headline often. And I'd say, coach, as I've told you before, I don't write the headlines. And he would then kind of laugh and he'd go, okay, well, bring that guy who writes the headlines <laughs> out with you today. And I said, I said, well, I'd love to bring them all out because it doesn't make my job but easier. Did he, but did he ever hold a grudge? That's the key, right? No. That's a, I mean, yeah, they can never. get mad at you and you can talk it out, but it's the ones who didn't hold a grudge that you had more respect for because they know that you're doing a job and you are you know they're doing a job and you just, you go about your business. This is what Gibbs would do. He would, um, there was one time I wrote, we weren't supposed to write about plays except for some of their fun stuff they do at the end of the practice. And then you could write a, like a little feature on something or a little item. Well, I thought they were they were practicing some crazy flea flicker where a, a, a running back almost ran into a brick wall because they ran out of room on the practice field. And I wrote that up because that looked to me like fun end of practice stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, the next day I get a call from Gibbs and it's not he's not mad about the headline writers. He's mad about you because <laughs> you wrote about one of our plays. And I said, what? And he goes, we'll talk about it when you're. You're coming out today. And I said, you know, because obviously I came out to, to, right to the park every day. So he goes, we'll talk about it more then. And I'm just feeling like, well, my gosh, I thought that was a joke. I didn't realize that was part of the, you know, I thought there was this gray area of, of what it was. I didn't think there was any gray area at all. Right. I thought it was a, you know, just a trick, you know, fun thing that they were doing. So now I'm out at the park. Gibbs calls me into his office. Uh, feels like going to the principal's office a little bit. And yeah, right. he said that that was a play we were going to use this week against Philadelphia. And now we can't use it because of you writing about it. Well, you know, I'm, I'm what, 26, seven years old. Uh, again, I'm not emotional, but I'm like, oh my gosh, coach, mm. I am so sorry. I, I hope you understand. I thought that was like goof, goofing around stuff. And when, when Gary Clark or whoever, Ricky Sanders almost ran into the wall, I actually thought that right. was, you know, everyone was laughing. I thought it was kind of funny. He goes, I see what you're getting at. He goes, uh, to me though, that was a mistake. And I said, I see where you are on this too. And he looked at me, do you have anything else to say about it? I said, no, I've given you my, my best, you know, explanation. And he said, uh, you know where I'm coming from? I said, absolutely, coach. And he said, good. Now we'll move on. That's great. And he did that every single time. Wow. I, so I always, always enjoyed covering the players. I always thought they felt grounded and they had a sense of perspective that other pro athletes, I don't know if it's because they were on campus for four years. Uh, they just, it was such a violent game. Their careers could end at any play. They just, for the most part, in general, NFL players were good to deal with. How did they treat you uh, in Washington? Yeah, they were really good. Um, you know, uh, some guys got mad because you wrote a story that talked about, you know, that they, you know, <laughs> missed five tackles or, or or gave up, you know, three touchdowns or something or fumbled on the goal line, of course. But that's that comes with the territory. But, I mean, these guys... 
are some of the greatest football players ever. And those offensive linemen especially were terrific to deal with. You know, you respect people. I respected Dave Butts. He had every right to not want a woman in that locker room. Uh, he respected me enough to uh, come in on his day off to do an interview with me. And I have incredible warm memories of the, that, that time. We talked a lot of football, but really your career has been about the Olympics. Are there lessons that you learned as a beat reporter covering the world of football that you expanded out into the great world of international sports competition? <laughs> I learned that I had to stick up for myself. I learned that I had to be strong. I learned that I had to be honest, that, you know, I would report something and I had to then face the music the next day when someone would be furious with me. I'm but you learned about standing up for yourself. You learned about the, you know, the idea that you, you take a stand and then you become the columnist at uh, USA Today in 97 and, and you're, you're covering Olympics, every Olympics since 84. Um, and now you're talking about world issues, not just football. You're talking about world issues, world sports. Um, and when you think about your career, the Olympics really has a special place, I would assume. Oh, my gosh. It, it does. As I mentioned earlier about being a, a girl growing up in Toledo and loving the Olympics. And I would have hoped, uh, Todd, to go to one Olympics as a, as a fan, you know, as, as maybe, you know, it just oh, maybe someday I could have tickets to an Olympic Games. And instead, you know, 18 in a row, winter and summer, every single one uh, since amazing. LA in 84. And not just... Um, not just, of course, you know, for the newspapers, but also doing the TV work, uh, including ABC News. And, of course, ABC was the network broadcasting those Olympics as a girl as I watched it. I mean, I oh, Jim McKay, yeah, yeah. burst into tears at the thought of, you know, uh, how full circle this is. Uh, and as well as, of course, you know, CNN now. And and um, so I, 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 yeah, it's just amazing to me. And I never lose sight of it. And, and you know what it is, it's and it goes back to the reporting, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, on being that tough reporter. I mean, this is sports is life. You know, the, the, it is the toy department. We used to hear those stories all the time. But this is a, it's now a part of our culture. It's no longer a mirror. Or it's no longer an escape from our, um, our reality. It is a mirror of our reality. And, and, and my goodness, my whole career, so much of what I do now is that intersection of sports and culture, which is now like a 12-lane superhighway. Uh, but it still starts with the reporting and it starts with treating people right and asking questions. And I might not always ask the right questions, but I'm willing to work hard enough uh, to, to get those answers and uh, to, to be able to hopefully break news, as I have been able to do, and also uh, to treat people right. I just, uh, yesterday I was working on something involving the Olympics and, and Tokyo, and I was talking to a couple sources, and I said, uh, it's a two-way street here. You know, you've answered my call. If there's something you don't like, whether if it's on the record, then yeah, the what do you the got paper. here? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, please, please, you call me. And you can tell me anything. And, and if you see something, the minute it's online, obviously now it's online. So the old days of waiting till it hits your doorstep, uh, you know, I want to hear about it right now. Um, and and uh, I, I because those relationships that I learned from covering Don Shula with the Miami Herald and Howard Schnellenberger and Charlie Pell with the Florida Gators and then all the way to Joe Gibbs and everything in, in Washington, those relationships are everything. And that's mm -hmm. what journalism is. And frankly, that's what the attack on journalism, that's what has been... Uh, so unfortunate about this enemy of the people thing. We are not the enemies. Uh, we work with you, uh, whether yeah, you know, someone's covering, questions, right. covering the school board about your kid. Uh, that journalist is going to do the job for you. And for me, if you love sports or if you care about these issues, uh, I'm one of many sports journalists who's out there doing this. Uh, we work with you. We are, we work with coaches. We work with players. We're not the enemy. And, and, um, and thankfully I, I've learned those lessons early on and I, I hope uh, to this, well, I promise you this, Todd, I'll never forget them. Well, I've always had a lot of respect for, for your 
willingness to take a stand, even if it might not be popular. You're, and it all starts with the reporting. You know, you make the calls, you do the research, you form an opinion, and then you and then you stand by it. Um, and I think that not that's not always done. And I think that the wild, all the the wide array of experiences in your career have led you to the point where you become such a respected voice that you end up winning the Red Smith Award. So, so well, it's you. great. I have one Thanks. final question: Is there any Olympic story besides Nancy and Tanya that still stands above others for you? Eighty-eight Olympics in Seoul. I, uh, it's the middle of, of course, the time difference is such, right, that uh, it's a, I literally looked at, at, at Kornheiser, who I worked with at the Post at, at the time, Tony Kornheiser, and we're going to have lunch. I said, no, no, I'm going to go over to the diving venue and, you know, just watch the preliminaries. Uh, you never know if someone's going to hit their head. You know, oh, you know Greg Leganis, right. Yeah. Right. So, but I said that. I literally said that <laughs> <You> said Kornheiser. <laughs> I was, you know, I never know if someone's going to hit their head. So I get some popcorn. I take, you know, I take one of the shuttles and I buy some popcorn at the, at the you know, concession stand of the diving venue. And I wander in up a stairwell and, and Greg Luganis is the greatest diver who's ever lived, the greatest ever. And he's on the board at the three meter springboard. At that exact moment, I come in and so I'm quiet and I'm literally at the same level he is and I'm probably only 20 feet from him. I'm just at this edge of the stands and there's the boards right there. And I can see this, I have this great view of him and he up he goes and I've covered Greg all the way through the LA games in 84. And, you know, this is going to be a swan song in 88. And up he goes, and I'm, my brain's looking at it. I can see it. I mean, I'm right at it, and I can't really jump out far enough. And then my other side of my brain saying, it's Greg Luganis. Don't worry. He knows what and he's doing. Solanus, what's <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. He's like the best ever. And But he's too close, but it's Greg Luganis, too close. Boom. And he hits his head on the, and I thought I just watched someone die. And I just remember going, oh my gosh. And he goes into, crumbles into the water. Thankfully, there's no blood. He, now he appears from the surface and he's up now and and he's rubbing his head and they rush over and he help him out of the pool. And those 30 minutes were one of the most amazing sports dramas ever. We now know he's not dead. We, we don't know how seriously he's injured. And we know this that if he does not come back and do a few more preliminary dives, this is a qualifying round, he will fall like a rock through the standings and he will not qualify. Well, I think it was 12 that qualified. He will not be in the finals to win an Olympic gold medal to, re, you know, to, to defend his Olympic gold medal. So this, on so many levels, this is a story that is amazing. It's the middle of the night in the United States. So what's fascinating is he does come back one of the more heroic things I've seen in sports, with a patch on his head, 30 minutes later, he's not retiring, he's not giving up, he's coming back on the board, he has to do almost the exact same dive, dive back into the board. We all held our breath. I remember feeling my, we're on the pool deck, actually looking up now at him, because that's where the press kind of well was to be there, and the, the press section. And looking up, I remember my heart was just racing. Again, you're, you're a journalist, but you're also a human being, and, and he nailed it. And no problem, far away from the board. He went on to dive the rest of the dives. He had fallen from first to third by getting zero. He didn't even fall, just from that one dive, he only went to third place. He was that great. Sounds like my chemistry grade, yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, exactly. It was uh, getting the zero, right? But anyway, so he comes back and makes it. And then the next day he wins the Olympic gold medal. And then he goes on to win the, the platform as well and wins both gold medals. That's a great story to wrap up because it shows the value of being there 
You have been there for journalism itself, especially for women journalists. You've always given back, sponsored scholarships. You're always available for lectures and podcasts like this. And I know uh, you've made sports writing a lot better because of your presence and your work. And I really want to say thank you for uh, taking the time to be with us. Well, Todd, thank you. What a delight to relive these stories and, uh, and, and to you as well. I always enjoyed seeing you and I always enjoyed saying, okay, this is a triple toe loop and this is a double X. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Sarah Wilgroup and her audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War, but half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine-American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, will discuss President McKinley, Admiral Dewey, the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Check out our show, Ohio vs. the World, on the Evergreen Podcast Network for our new episode about America's most forgotten war. Now back to the show.